Welcome back to the flip side, ladies and gentlemen. Galen Clavio here, along with Brian Moritz. There he is. You see him, that beautiful, beautiful visage there with the, the cat plates and the moose plate behind him. Um, we, we have a moose, uh, a raccoon, no, I don't know, a badger? Sure. A cat and a, a reindeer dressed in winter. Uh, life is my, a, life's an incredible thing, it really is. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're back. We're here to talk a little bit of everything today. A lot, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I did not dress up today. I, I've actually, it was, uh, I had a lot of stuff happening out there in the the wild blue yonder. I got the cops called on me earlier today. What'd uh, you do? So this is silly. So we have uh, a golden retriever, which many of you on the show have seen, named Nelson. And uh, our obedience trainer suggested that we go downtown in Bloomington and walk around and so I was like, yeah, sounds great. So we went down there, and we uh, one of the things that he likes to do is take the dog up an elevator. It's the first time for Nelson on an elevator. Uh, okay. So we went up an elevator in the parking garage downtown. So it's not a big parking garage. It's like four stories. So we start walking down the ramp, and one of the things that you know is good for the dog to do is um, to walk behind cars and around cars so that they don't get like paranoid about being in tight spaces, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so we did that and he did great. Nelson did an awesome job. And so we walk out of the parking garage and we walk about three or four blocks. And then a, a, a uniformed Bloomington police department uh, officer pulls up his car right beside us, gets out and says that he'd gotten some reports of some people looking in cars in the parking garage. And apparently it matched our description, nice. um, which was great. Cause like the, you know, I'm I'm in what I'm in now, and right. the trainer's in a bright lime green shirt. And you know, I I know that the city's not what it used to be, but the idea that you would uh, in 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 those sorts of clothes be looking into cars and trying to steal stuff, I thought was a little bit humorous, particularly when you're like towing an ornery golden retriever with you. So right, right. You know, when because well, because as you know from your from your years of, uh, of, of as with a life of crime, if you want to commit crime, you want to be as conspicuous as possible. You want to have as many things calling attention to you as possible before you actually commit the crime. It's 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 the Donald Trump Jr. way. <laughs> so boy, boy, he's an idiot. I mean. I, I, I he, he he's he's either an idiot or he's making an assumption that uh, by by having all the information out there, the the media cycle will eat itself. Uh, I think the problem that he's got is he thinks that the media is who's going to like potentially charge him with a crime, right. as opposed to the special <laughs> prosecutor. Right. So there's there's a bit of an issue there, I think. But yeah, man, that's that's been that was a hell of a thing to watch unfold yesterday. Like the the, the shock. Uh, on the faces or the Twitter, I guess not the faces, but the shock in the Twitter accounts of some of the journalists that had been covering that case was yeah. palpable. I forget who, I forget the reporter for the, I think it was either the Times or the Journal, who, whose re- Twitter response was literally something like, I've, I've been chasing this story for a year and he just, he, he just tweeted it out. Yeah. Like you could sense that. Like, like, yeah. Think, what, he, he also had a statement like, I guess none of us just thought to ask. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. to to you know uh, put himself in that situation. I mean, it's true. I no one said, "Hey, can you just release the tweets?" Maybe, maybe that's just, the tack that needs to be. Hey, taken. can you forward me the emails? And he'd be like, "Yeah, sure, I've got them." It's that <laughs> weird kind of. I'm not gonna let. And it's what's weird about so many things that are weird about it. But like, you know, taking politics out of it from like a like a damage control spin PR perspective, like. 
I guess part of it is the I'm being transparent and I'm getting out in front of the story. But it just seems weird that like when your entire like PR move as a White House is basically to condemn most mainstream thought while respecting media outlets as fake news. The New York Times, if they had reported this like they were, because I guess from my understanding is the story, he released them because the Times said, we've got the emails. Can you comment on it like you do? And he's like, "Baha, I'll beat you to it. Right. Uh, Which makes no damn sense. But like you you think that, you know, for fake news, fake news, fake news, they would just be like New York Times has a story or more fake news from, you know, they made this up. They, they, They blah, 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 created it, whatever. I don't know. It's just it. All the arrests. It's yet another odd, like subplot with this whole thing that I think is is really. It's the whole thing's been fascinating because it's like so much of the process of the the story and the the kind of the eddies that the story has followed have defied the norm, I guess. But but on the flip side, it's like, do we have a norm for this sort of an era? I mean, yeah, I know. Obama was like the first social media president, but the social media Obama came in with the way that they worked was much different in 2008, even in 2012, than what we've got in 2017. And so, you know, when you look at it, you're like, maybe this is the new normal. I mean, it it, was, why not? Yeah. I don't, it's, it's bizarre to me to, to watch this and to kind of understand why they why he would do it the process behind it just and and trying to catch up on that story yesterday was crazy like you it was really one of those days where you had to stop following for a little bit and let kind of the story settle and people to actually write about it or come up with a with like an actual story about it because trying to follow it in real time was just mind-boggling and and so I put this out here. We were talking a little about this on Twitter just before we hit record. I put this out there, you know, thinking politically. Like I, I maybe took one political science class in my undergrad day, so I am not I, a political theorist. I took two, so I am a political. You, theorist. you are the okay as a, as a political science expert. You can help me out on this. So my my my, my question is. From a purely political standpoint, from a, like a popularity, popular support idea background idea what is the incentive for the paul ryan's and i'll say paul ryan but you know you can insert mitch mcconnell or whatever republican leadership to still support trump because here's the thing i and and i retweeted this out and some somebody had said it's amazing there's not one republican who wants to be remembered as the greatest american ever you know the first guy to kind of the first republican to actively not just you know well this doesn't look very good john mccain style poo-pooing but like actually come out and condemn trump and 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 say that you know whatever he should be impeached whatever wherever wherever you go with it and i was just thinking like if you're paul ryan why where where why stick with this guy you've got mike pence waiting in the wing who's who is doing a beautiful job of of staying away from the uh, of throwing everyone else under the bus while he just kind of stands off to the side he's as much a conservative ideologue as ryan and mcconnell are um, he's more conservative, kind of tr- traditionally minded than Trump has ever been. So it's not like 
it's not like if Trump gets impeached or resigned that like Hillary wins because she was runner up. That's not how it works. Well, so I, 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 I guess I wonder from a political standpoint, where, why stick with this guy at this point? Why not cut bait, say he betrayed us, he betrayed you. We want to restore, we want us, even if you put the whole GOP puts party before country, why not say we need to save the party for this and future generations and not be taken down by, by George and George Michael Bluth? Okay, so I'm going to try to respond to this. And I think the the problem with trying to respond to this is that uh, people assume when you lay out a plan of action that you approve of that plan of action or you think that it's the right plan of action. Like the one of the one of the hallmarks of the social media era is that we've removed any sort of like third party objectivity or context from people's statements. And and so I'll I'll preface what I'm about to say with that. So okay. Here's what I think. I think the reason Ryan or, um, you know, some of the other people in, in, the, in the congressional leadership, McConnell, whoever, haven't done what you've described is, is really probably twofold, maybe threefold. So, so I think the, the number one thing is the people that are calling for that kind of action are almost uniformly anti-Trump uh, very liberal, progressive, whatever you want to label them, people. People who, like me. Who are, yeah, people like you. I mean, not just you. I mean, but, but very, mm-hmm. much the, very much the political class, the people that are very attuned to what's going on, the people that are following the Hill on, on Twitter, the people that are like reading the New York Times religiously every day. That is such a minuscule segment of the overall population. Um, you know, I think that the, for a lot of the people you know, there's been a lot of complaints about the kind of inside the beltway, outside the beltway thing. Like if you, I don't know if you've, if you read that book about the Hillary Clinton campaign yet, or, you know, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that comes out in that, and I thought uh, Matt Tybee like brought it up really well in the review that he wrote about it was this idea that um, there's such a disconnect between the people who not just the inside the beltway people, but the people that have connected themselves to the information sources inside the beltway and the people who don't pay that much attention to it. You know, it's kind of like the difference to use a sports analogy. It's like the people who are like hardcore sabermetric baseball types and the people who tuned into the all-star game because they thought it would be fun. Mm-hmm. Like it's like it's, and, and I think there's far more people uh, in the voting public who look at it in the latter uh, perspective. And, and so they're, they're not necessarily going to give Paul Ryan the benefit of any doubt um, or, or any sort of like, you know, extra plaudits for turning on Trump because they haven't followed the story closely enough to realize that that might be a good thing to do. Um, the inside the Beltway people say that they will, but, you know, as we've seen many times, the, that, you know, the approval of the people on the inside the beltway thing is a very fickle sort of deal. Like, you know, it's, it doesn't last very long. And for someone like Paul Ryan, who's not running for president, he's already speaker of the house. Like there's not a lot else that he needs, except maybe, I guess if he wants to run for Senate, um, like that crowd isn't going to do him any favors anyway, down the line. Like the only reason they're even saying that is because there's a larger, objective that that the people that are being critical want to have taken out of the way which is trump so that's the first thing the second thing is um you know the disarray that the republicans were in post watergate uh gets kind of overshadowed now 
But that was a that was a party that was in tremendous disarray for about four or five years. I mean, to the point that you know you had faithless electors in in 1976. You had Jimmy Carter, who under normal circumstances probably wouldn't have had a shot in hell at being elected to the presidency, got elected largely because people were so fed up with the Republicans. Regardless of what the Republicans as a party do with their reaction towards Trump, there is going to be a negative reaction towards the Republicans if they move against Trump. And it'll come from both sides. Democrats will immediately use that as a, as a bludgeon against them in the primaries and, and in the general election saying, look, these people nominated someone that got impeached. And right. the Trump voters will say, these assholes betrayed a Republican elected president. So, like, it seems like, oh, no, they'll be heroes. No, they will be drummed out of public office. And maybe that's the right thing to do. But the political calculus just isn't there. So that's that would be I know that's not what people want to hear. But if you're really going to look at it from a political perspective, you have to look at it from their political perspective, not the political perspective of the people that just want Trump out, which, granted, is a lot of people. Right. No, that's a really, really good point. I mean, any Republican who does this, while they may be like remembered and thought highly by like people like me, they're, they're done. Are you, they're signed- are you gonna vote for him? Are you are you voting for Paul Ryan in the general? <laughs> I, they're, of course not. He's in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like if he if he did this and then used it as a platform to run for president, would you oh, vote God, no. for him against no. the Democrat? No, of course not. So what no. good does it do him? That's good. No, that's a, it is. It is. It's a, it, it's a good point. You're signing your own death warrant, really, if you're a Republican and you do that because you, you're you're angering the you're angering the Trump base is tiny. And I and I often feel like the, the Republican and Republicans feel like they are very uh very scared of this very relatively small Trump base. It's like 20, 25%, which is not big. Um, and let's face it. I don't, you know, he won, he won the primary, but he won really a crowded field. So he was, you know, he was, there were a lot of slices to that pie until the very end until, um, but there were a lot of slices of that pie. And so he was kind of winging it. So I feel like they're very scared of that very kind of like vocal wing. And you, and you wonder too, how I wonder too, you know, how much, what they saw happen with the tea party in 2010 where like that really vocal band, small, but really vocal band really kind of took over the party. And, um, and it's, it's just, you know, like I've said before, and I'm sure on the show, this is all fascinating to watch if it didn't all mean we're going to die somehow. Um, <laughs> but, um, but no, it's it, it, this, this watching the story unfold it is fascinating. And now, you know, you always, you know, it, it's funny to see like the defense being, well, it's not really collusion because they only met once or it's not actually treason because blank. Um, because, of course, let's be honest, this was probably the only meeting they had. They met once and it didn't go anywhere. And ah, shucks, let's go back to uh, to New York City. Um, but it's fascinating to, to watch. And it's much better to talk about than, as my overlay would suggest, David Brooks taking a friend to a deli and her being confused about meat. That that story again. It's funny that that story blew up. It only really blew up on Twitter. Like I right. noticed, it, it was like it was among the same sorts of people that we're talking about that think that Paul Ryan should throw Donald Trump under the bus. It's like um, I don't. I mean, I saw all of the tweet. I still haven't read the piece, to be honest with you, because the the, the responses to it made me uninterested. In right. Me it's too. Like, oh, wow, David Brooks wrote something dumb again. Wow. Let me rush over to that and write a thousand words on medium. Right. Um, you know, it's like, there is something that's interesting though. Um, so I, two things that I think, uh, since we're talking politics, we might as well talk some more politics. Did you read 
the paste piece on lecture porn yet no but now i'm interested okay it's, hang on this is it, gonna be fun this is always fun to google something like this this, ma- this, was, this was this was this was retrieved from matt zimmerman's um facebook okay. page so so i'm assuming this is audience members are vomiting fainting getting uh i got cut off getting in no this is 1984 no um Hang on. This is this is by an author named Emmett Penny. This is great radio, by the way, that we're doing here. Emmett Penny. Uh, the, the, the title is better now that we're video. Is, we're the, videoing the, the it. The title is "Lecture Porn: The Vulgar Art of Liberal Narcissism." <laughs> um, but the but the kind of the core concept of of this is you know, and it's paste. Paste is a very um, it's a little out there in terms of their political perspective. I, I think that they've got some unique stuff. It's kind of like if, if vice sports had a political uh, thing right. going, but uh, you know, one of the things they talk about, uh, I'll just quote it here. What is lecture porn? It is the media spectacle of a lecture whose audience is the opponent of the lecture's intended target. John Stewart, Trevor Noah, Samantha B, Keith Olbermann, Rachel Maddow, Aaron Sorkin, oh, okay, yeah. and a host, a whole host of others have built their careers on this forum. Lecture porn pulls off an amazing trick. It simultaneously delivers both elements of narcissistic supply. You sit and watch someone ingratiate themselves to you while they eviscerate someone you don't like, who is, in turn, unlikely to watch said lecture. Um, it's an interesting piece. From, from a political discourse perspective, you can like, argue the finer points of like, uh, you know, whether it's a huge problem or not in terms of one political party over another, but the argument is that it's, it hurts liberals and progressives because it castigates people that they don't agree with as just being like wrong and irredeemable as opposed to conservatives who just cast the people they don't agree with as wrong and and something else but not irredeemable like it doesn't write them off the the ticket entirely and when you talk about like the small like the the minuscule trump uh minority it's still what would you say 25 percent of the voting electorate right now about that yeah i mean that's uh, from a percentage perspective, that's small. From a like, that's a huge block. Like, that's a larger block than the entire African American voting block combined with the uh, entire Asian American voting block. Like, it's it's a tremendous amount of votes when you take the whole thing into account. Um, and this this article is fascinating, I think, because it it talks about like, okay, why is it that Democrats have lost all these special elections, you know, to to pe- you know to terrible people. Like, you know, you had the Montana congressman who body slams the Guardian reporter. You've got, right. you know, other people who, who have you know, like had significant moral and ethical lapses who keep getting elected over Democrats. And it's like, why do people hate Democrats so much? And so, um, it, this again goes back to this idea of why Ryan and the rest of the Republicans don't want to throw Trump overboard because they think, okay, well, we can manage Trump. We'd prefer to deal with Pence. We can manage Trump. But we have a built-in advantage in the electorate right now, which is that none of us are Democrats. And <laughs> why, why, like, why tip that balance if we think we can manage the situation on our own here? Yeah, I finally found the article. And I remember seeing Matt post it. And, and it is true. Like, I remember hearing, I think on a, on a podcast, I think it might've been Dubai Friday, which is a great podcast I can recommend that uh, uh, it was John, it was about uh, one of John Oliver's take big, take big takedowns of Trump. And like, like I remember like the, the, the hosts were kind of joking about it and like it may, they were making a lot of the same points that this article is seemingly making. Like it's basically the liberal version of Fox news, right. You know, kind of preaching to the choir, 
you know, the other side sucks and is terrible and we're smart and right and doing all that. But the, but, but what ru- kind of ruined John Oliver for me was the idea realizing that all the people, all the things he so awesomely takes down and he's brilliant at it. Like I still use sure. the net neutrality thing in my classes at least once a semester. It's brilliant, but he, he only takes down, like he really goes after kind of low hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, like he goes after like uh, net neutrality. Okay, that's a really easy thing to take down. The NCAA, whoa, that's, that's a challenge to go after the NCAA. We, uh, we, we have something here called IUSA, which is the IU Student Association. And they like, you know, they're the ones that they, they have tickets. They run for like student office. Mm-hmm. That, and this reminds me in, I think it was 1998 or 1999. Um, some of my IU people will, will remember this there was a, a joke ticket that was started called the vast right-wing conspiracy. And the, their whole thing was like, they were mocking the process. And so they had this big press conference in Dunmeadow and, and they were going to announce their platform. And so they came out and they announced that their platform was that they were against hate. <laughs> and and it, it, it's the same sort of thing you're talking about with John Oliver. It's like, okay, go, great. Yeah. Go after, go after net neutrality. That's that you're really stepping out on a ledge there, buddy. Right. I mean, yeah. So, so, so we have some great topics from listeners that we, uh, we collected on uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, this morning. You said you had, did you have any other kind of talking thinking points that you wanted to hit before we get rolling here? One, which before was, we start the show actually. Okay. Yeah. We, we actually started the show. Uh, did you read the much talked about piece in the New Yorker? Um, the, uh, the, the climate doom piece yet i i started reading it i think on monday morning and i realized that i had i i, I it would leave me depressed and angry for the whole week um so okay. i stopped um so I, I i know the basics basically we're all gonna die like in three days well well not quite in three days but yeah well it's interesting though because so that i've seen that posted quite a bit um and then i've seen a lot of reaction to it even from like very like active you know, people that are very active politically in terms of trying to fight climate change saying, you know, this is, this is really overstating a lot of facts. It's overstating a lot of, of the, the things that scientists themselves are saying it's being kind of aggressively pe- pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I saw since porn seems to be the word uh, du jour with, with a lot of this stuff, I think someone even referred to it as disaster porn. Mm-hmm. And it is, it, it is an interesting phenomenon, I think, because, I mean, this is becoming more and more in the in the public consciousness, and I think that the you know certainly the scientific evidence is is overwhelming. But but what's fascinating is this idea that there's a segment of, and I noticed this with journalists especially. There's a segment of journalists who seem to write from a perspective of it's almost like it's almost like a morality play. Like all of these things are going to happen, and we deserve it. Da 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 da, and that's like the, that ends up being the the, the the centrifugal point of the piece, as opposed to laying out exactly what it is that's being faced. It, it's it's a subtle thing, but it's something that's interesting because it's it's very judgmental in in a way that I think is is fascinating um, because it it presupposes a kind of a a top down control level that probably ninety eight percent of the audience doesn't actually possess. Um, and I don't know. I, what, what's your opinion on that sort of an approach to, to, to writing about a subject like that? Hmm. I mean, 
I get it from a from I guess I get it from the perspective, especially when you're talking about something like climate change or something like that, where it's kind of a no, this is important. You, we need to do something about this. We need to do something about this. Twenty that's, years ago, that's, and, not, and, that's not quite what I'm talking about. No, I know, but no, I know, but um, it's kind of. I think that's kind of like a baseline of it, like as trying to. Like I said, I haven't read the article, so I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm struggling to kind of think of the tone that you're talking about. But but I don't know. It, it just it it strikes me as you know this idea of almost journalist or writer as activist, or like not just we're reporting what's happening, like putting some. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Putting some urgent, some real urgency to it. And it's very easy. And, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned this about climate change, because I think, you know, I jokingly retweeted, but there's some seriousness. Uh, Charlie Daniels, the, the devil went down to George guy who incidentally has the worst body odor of any human being I've ever been near. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, he tweeted out something along the lines of, the the universe's thermostat is controlled not in heaven, not at the United Nations. God controls the thermostat. Like something like basically this idea that I've actually that I've seen Republican politicians say before yeah. that God is in charge of the climate, not man. And um and so I think I, I think the the way you're talking about writers doing that is an interesting way to kind of recast that recast kind of like the we've got to fight climate change side in a as a morality play when it's traditionally the other way. Um, I don't know. It just, I'll let, I, I want you to read the piece and then read okay. some of the reaction pieces and let's talk about it next week. Cause I don't think okay. it's not going away anytime soon. No, no, no. Um, unless we solve climate change while I'm on, unless while I'm on vacation, I solve climate change, which could happen. We'll get on that right now. We'll so anyway, we got, we have, we have reader questions. What do we got going today? All right. So we're going to start with, um, all right, we'll start with the one that was posed to you and then we'll do you, me, and then we'll go around. So this was John K. Colliter, Colliter, Colluder, Colluder. Um, well, what is collusion anyway? What is Colluder anyway? Uh, he's <laughs> asked, my cousin recently adopted a dog and named it Fagin. Should he have named it Becker instead? Yeah, I love that. That's I, okay. I mean, did you get it? No, I don't. Is oh. this the TV show Becker? No, 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 no. Okay, um, is this is this the the tennis player Becker? Because all my 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 expertise here is the tennis player Boris Becker and Fagan's the bar by Syracuse. Well, and both Kate of those Fa- and and Kate Fagan, the lovely and talented uh, writer for ESPN and uh, on uh, Hot Takedown host. You've managed to miss both the best Fagan and both the best Becker. It's kind of sad, um, but no, uh, this is a Steely Dan reference, actually. Oh, okay. Um, oh, that that's another topic we have to get to. Thank you for reminding me of that. Okay, Do- Donald Fagan, the the lead singer, and Walter Becker, who's the bassist slash electric guitarist. They were the writing team that comprised Steely Dan. Uh, they met at at Bard College in the late '60s, and then went and wrote uh, at the Brill building for a while and then became international superstars. So okay. um, my, my response to him was simply the, the more sarcastic the dog is and the more biting the dog's commentary on life, the more likely it needed to be named Becker instead of Fagan. Uh, okay. Fagan's a little more optimistic. Um, although when you hear him sing, you wouldn't necessarily think so, but um, uh, yeah, I'm surprised that you're not more into Steely Dan. Like that's, 
like from a lyrical perspective, that is absolutely a writer's sort of band, you know? Yeah. So th- this brings up another topic that came up on a Facebook discussion that we had had uh, that you, we were going to have a thread that you or my wife were on. And my wife, want, as a topic, wanted, wanted brought up her shocking, her musical gaps, her, the yes. gaps in her musical knowledge. So the backstory of this is we, it, 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 the joke in our house is that my wife killed Levon Helm. Um, so this was seven years ago. My wife was pregnant with our daughter. And uh, Levon Helm and Willie Nelson, they were on tour and they came and played uh, in Canandaigua at the CMAC Amphitheater, which is a great venue. And we went and we went with my in-laws and we were going primarily to see Willie Nelson. I'm a long time big Willie Nelson fan. Um, my, my in-laws are huge old kind of outlaw old school country music fans. My wife grew up with that. I grew up with that music. And Lee Von Helm was there too. And at the time, like I knew who Lee Von Helm was. I was never a, a very big fan of the band. Like I appreciate them. I know one of those bands that kind of like Steely Dan, I guess. Like I don't, I'm not particularly a fan of, but I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, they're terrible, blah, blah, blah. blah. I, just one of the many bands I just didn't listen to a lot. Uh-huh. And so we sit down and we're, the, the, there was confusion. There was, there was uh, expectations were not right expectations were that Levon Helm and his band were opening for Willie Nelson. And so we expected kind of like the usual opener, like half hour, 45 minutes. How you could have possibly expected that. But anyway, go ahead. Anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and so Levon Helm starts playing and he keeps going, you know, he plays a full, they, they play a full set as you know, you realize, wait, Levon Helm's going to play a full set. Of course he's going to. And my in-laws and my wife were less than happy um, it was very hot. My wife was at the time the, 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 the six months pregnant or so. So it was a very hot, muggy night. And she started getting more and more ornery and more and more upset. And, I, and, and the joke is at one time, she's like, I wish he'd die already or something like that. I don't think she actually said that, but that was definitely her mentality of that. Maybe a year later, Levon Helm famously gets cancer and dies. So the joke in the family is that we killed Levon Helm. The point, the circling to the bigger point, is that my wife, God bless her, has shocking gaps in, in pop music history and classic rock. Um, so, like, like the one of the jokes we have is there any classic rock will come on out and and I'll say, hey, this is the Rolling Stones. It could be Led Zeppelin. It could be Iron Maiden. It could be Levon Helm and the band. It could be anybody. Um, one of the one of the, the the one of the funniest moments is we were driving in the car one time, and satisfaction comes on the radio, like the the actual yeah, stone satisfaction, yeah, yeah. right, right. And I'm like, who is this? I'm quizzing her. She's like, come on, this is the Rolling Stones. I'm like, wow, I'll be surprised. I'm surprised you knew that one. <laughs> her response, I only knew it because Britney Spears covered this song. Yeah, um, but it, it it is just like that that kind of you know i mean to uh, be fair my that, wife my wife has similar gaps mm-hmm. uh, it, it's not i mean now she's gotten a lot better like right. i remember playing like the flying burrito brothers for the first time and she had no clue now she knows the whole album by heart mostly because i just play it incessantly but, um, <laughs> but it, i mean yeah it's weird like the the number of gaps that exist and mm-hmm. like i don't i don't know what the i mean i have some theories as to why some people have them and some people don't but well, I, well, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to hear your theories as well. I mean, I think what's important to know when we say about Gap, it's not just like, well, I don't know a lot of Led Zeppelin or I don't know Stones. Like she could hear a Led Zeppelin song and have to really like, like 
stairway, not stairway to heaven, but like, I don't know, rock and roll or uh, a lot of love or cashmere and be like, who's this? Is this, yeah. the, this sounds like, and so those kind of gaps. Um, and look, nobody has perfect musical knowledge, but that's just a funny one that is just like an absolute black hole of nothing. So what are the theories that you have on this? Well, I just think it's a value proposition. I mean, when did you learn about the majority of the classic rock bands? Like what time period in your life? In college. Okay. So I think for most people, it starts maybe as early as middle school. Depends on the people that you're around. But I think you have to have friends that are interested. I think you really have to have parents that listen to that music. And then you yourself have to seek some of it out. I mean, I, I, you know... from from middle school through high school, I think maybe into college, like that's when you learn about the most music that you're going to learn about. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's just not that important. Uh, you know, I have a, a former student of mine who, I mean, loves a bunch of different things, you know, sports and movies and so forth, doesn't really listen to music, has never really listened to music. And so it's just never been that big of a thing for them. You know, for me, it's always been a huge thing. And it was something it was kind of a thing I did on my own for a long time where, you know, I'd I'd read about a band and I'd listen to the band and I'd want to listen to more. And then that would lead me to other people. And then he'd hear about other bands from that. I just don't think that that's that normal of a sociological process that people go through. Um, There really has to be, there have to be cues around you. And and I think that, especially in the culture we have today, uh, I mean, I'm assuming your wife's about the same age that you and I are. Yep it was probably easier back then because music was more pervasive within society. What we see now is music has become very kind of isolated, uh, almost the way that movies have become isolated. And and the music's probably more isolated than movies, particularly old music, because you don't have to listen to the classic rock station. You don't have to listen to to the top 40 station. You can... If you are going to listen to music, you can find whatever. But if you're in your car, you might as well be listening to an audio book as opposed to the radio. So a lot of the avenues through which music would have filtered into people aren't there. And I'm just guessing that your wife historically was around people that didn't care that much about music. Well, they they cared about specific music. Like it was very much country music, like like that kind of 90s country music, like Garth Brooks, Trisha Yearwood. Um, that, that kind of, kind of, and and it's interesting because, you know, and also kind of a time and space of where we grew up, like you're saying music is being really individualized now and also individualized, not just in taste, but in terms of we can all listen to our own devices and our own things. It was a lot, it wasn't harder. It was a little harder to do that back then. And if you were in a house where, you know, you're like, like my wife did where her, her mom listened to primarily that kind of country music and that's the music that was on, it was that that was more dominant i think within a household than it would be now where i can listen to one thing she can listen to something else my daughter can listen to we can kind of each have our own not just accounts but like listen to our own things with a lot more ease than we did back then and it's more culturally i guess acceptable to kind of do that right like it's more like it's much more your music is very much in very much your individual playlist and your taste now rather than kind of the big you know kind of it's Cultural not, musical lodestones. I just don't think it's important culturally anymore. I mean, if you think about it, like, I mean, it's 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 important from an ancillary perspective, but mm-hmm. I don't feel like the there's not a lot to hang on to if you're a music person these days. You have to really go and find it on your own. And the fact of the matter is, that's not. I mean, I look at it like this: Be, music was one of the few 
sort of cultural touchstones that everybody could connect to anywhere in the world, really. You know, I mean, you could go to, you know, I mean, the, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles could go to Indonesia and play a show and there'd be 50,000 screaming fans there because they'd heard the music, even if they didn't understand the language that it was in. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to have that now because social media has taken care of a lot of those connections for you. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot more, like it takes bands two or three years to put an album out now, you know, like television shows, you know, they're they're releasing entire seasons worth of shows in uh, instantly, you know? Mm -hmm. So like there's, there's a lot more immediate cultural touchstones. And I think to some degree, it's the the problem with the music industry because the music industry is still acting like it's 1975 in terms of the way stuff gets recorded, the way stuff gets marketed. So I do think that there's a problem with it there, but I just don't think, I think we're in a lull right now. And I think if you listen to music podcasts, a lot of them talk about how rock and roll is dead and I mean, it's true. I mean, right now the music scene is almost entirely dominated by pop or by, you know, hip hop or by country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, those are the three things. And, and like traditional, like guitar based rock and roll isn't really a big deal to, to most people. It's still a big deal to some small groups of people, just mm-hmm. like, like Western music used to be a big deal to people like back in the fifties, it wasn't a, a mass marketed thing. I think that'll swing around eventually, but it's going to take a wholesale change in the way that the industry goes about things. And I think as far as people having big gaps in their music, I think that's just only going to get worse. And, you know, and I think it's the same thing with movies. Like I've got another former student of mine who, who works in TV. She was doing a radio show this weekend and they made a list of all the movies she hasn't seen. Now she's probably 26, 27. So she's never seen, uh, I've got the list here cause she posted it on Twitter. She's never seen like, uh, let's see. Field of Dreams, Groundhog Day, Airplane, Fight Club, uh, Ghostbusters, the, the Goonies, Christmas Story, Friday, The Usual Suspects, Rudy, Major League One and Two, Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, League of Their Own, Ace Ventura, Revenge of the Nerds. How many of those have you seen? Um, all of them, I'm yeah. sure. And, and so, like, and that's that sort of thing, I think, is that's something we've been seeing, you know, time and time again. It's like movies have always been a lot more like culturally kind of segregated based upon the generations that they mm-hmm. pop, in, up, pop up in. And maybe that's just how music's going to be. This is really the, the third music generation. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the baby boomers were the first, Gen X was the second, millennials are the third. Maybe we shouldn't be expecting millennials or even the tail end of Gen X to really have that big of a concept of what was popular among the boomers. Yeah. So, yeah. So do you have any pop culture gaps? Movies and TV from about 2004 on. Yeah. Because I, when I started, I've told this people before, like I used to love watching movies. I'd go to, I used, my original career goal was I wanted to be a film director. Um, When I started like really hardcore broadcasting full time, I just didn't have time for, I had to cut something out. And Mm -hmm. so I've kept up on music. Like I'm, I'm pretty up on what's going on in the music scene over the last 15 years. But you know, like I know of TV series that have gone on and I've maybe watched parts of one or two of them. Like I watched episodes of the office, uh, you know, and there've been a couple of others like that, but like I'm, I'm, I'm on episode two of game of Thrones, you know, and I've made it through (laughs) one season of, of house of cards. Um, so those are my big ones. Like I, I was pretty up on most of those sorts of items in terms of like being able to be really conversant about it until about oh four oh five, and then I lost it and I had trouble getting it back. How about you? Yeah, I would say 
mostly movies like tv a little bit but i've seen enough of i feel like the bigger ones like i've seen i watched the office when i was on parks and rec so i i I, i'm conversing on that but movies you know especially since we had our daughter like those really kind of fell off because the movies get harder and harder to go to and um yeah i watch a lot of minion type movies and a lot of disney type movies since then and yeah that just kind of becomes you know the one you know like the the popular type movies become kind of like the easier ones to kind of drop off and i guess new music in a way but i don't really kind of view that as a gap um you know like i know drake is popular i think he's terrible but i know he's popular um, I know Kendrick Lamar is po- is popular. I know he's, and I think he's really good. You know, I, that my, my opinion doesn't go beyond that, but I am at least like know there that that those are names of musicians that are popular among my students. So, all right. Speaking of musicians, this one I think is directed at me because it's about the Avett brothers. So, I, you, do you mind if I just take this one straight up and you can like drink some tea or whatever? Please go ahead. Okay. So anyway, this is my friend Jason Smith, and this is a setup from a discussion that we had had been having on Facebook. He wanted wanted me to discuss why the Avet brothers should fire half the band and Rick Rubin and quote simplify things. Discuss in sixty seconds, please. So this is a uh, a running joke on uh, among Avet brothers fandom. So the band started out as a three piece, the two brothers and the and the bass player. Has in the past, I don't know, fifteen years that they've been a band, they've grown, they've added added musicians, they've been recording the last couple albums with rick rubin which is kind of when they've had their bigger commercial success and this past week they did a three-show run at red rocks they do it every summer and somebody commented on one of the fan boards that they wish they would simplify things and go back to kind of like the old days and i think it's just you know it's tiresome because it comes up in fandom on the fan boards all the time but it's kind of like that classic you know small band that we loved when they were tiny and they played little little gigs now all of a sudden gets popular and they're they they their sound changes and it's not what it was when I liked them in 2004. And man, I wish it could go back to, you know, to what it was before then. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure REM fans felt the same way when uh, out of time came out in 1989 and, uh, and that. And so, you know, it's kind of like the life cycle of a band seen through, you know, kind of um, over and over again. Right. You know, like the, the small band gets big and the fans who were, who loved them back, back when they were small, wish they were still small and they're not anymore. So you were looking out the window. Are the cops coming for you again? They're back. Yes. I'm, I'm terrified right now. I might have to start podcasting from an undisclosed location. Awesome. So. Awesome. I'm amazed that you haven't. Okay. So friend of the show and official sister of me, Amy Moritz, wanted us to talk about the lack of a true off season for pro sports and the message of having to be, quote, always on, it sends to kids. So this kind of idea that sports news is always going, whether it's free agency or like mini camps and developmental camps are happening for the NHL and this kind of, you know, there's always, there's no real downtime. There's no real off season. And interesting. I think it's an interesting thing to think about extrapolating that out to, to kids and that they, how they kind of always have to be on and like not resting and always working. Any thoughts on that? I think it's a great preparation for real life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's funny because when we talk about, Oh, you know, sports are always on and we've got these 12 month seasons now. And it's like, well, first of all, just because there's news doesn't mean that there's like everyday work necessarily going in other than like the physical training that you have to do. Mm -hmm. at this point. I mean, if you're going to be competitive, I mean, it's, it's, I hate to say it, but the people, people seem, I'm not talking about your sister here necessarily, but a lot of people who criticize the, 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 the 12 month calendar of sports, 
I don't think they realize like how much better the training has gotten and how much more physically um, smarter, smarter and, and, and more demanding the sports are because so um, I I was listening to the, there was a podcast with uh, Bill Simmons and John McEnroe, which is actually pretty good. Um, I was listening to that this morning on my run and they were talking about how, you know, McEnroe and that whole group, you know, uh, Connors and, and Becker and, and, and uh, Lendl, whoever, you know, they're, they're in an era in the seventies and eighties where, you know, you, you're, you're in the middle of the U S open and you're going to studio 54, you know, right. you know, the night before your semifinal and you're out till three in the morning. And it's like, you know, and even Jordan 20 some years ago, you know, he's going out gambling all night and then he's, you know, going and playing a game the next day. Well, it's, it's much harder for people to do that now because, everybody around you is on these very tightly controlled physical regimens. And it's, it's not, I mean, I don't think it's something to be critical about. I think it's the natural evolution of the sports. And I mean, if you think about the way that business works, I mean, we, we criticize the atmosphere around, you know, a lot of businesses for being all work all the time and and they're very difficult, but ultimately that's where if you want to make a lot of money, if you want to like increase in reputation, you're going to go and do those things and you're going to put in ridiculous amounts of billable hours as an attorney, or you're going to be working seven days a week as a, as a, as a professor writing stuff. Is it healthy? No, that's a different discussion altogether. But as far as, as far as the message that it sends, I think the message that it sends to kids is probably, well, this is how society's ruling itself right now. You know, it's not necessarily, you must do this, uh, you know, this, this can't ever change. And I think it'll eventually change because I think eventually we'll figure out that yes, human beings do have breakpoints, but, um, but I don't, I don't know that it's something that we can look at and, and definitively say, you know, that it's sends a bad message. Cause I think if like, I think a lot of kids are looking at their parents and getting the same messages reinforced in watching the way that their parents are working on a day-to-day basis. No, that's a good point. And, and, and being my, my sister's official spokesman here, I can say that I'm sure she's going from the is it healthy perspective, which is, you know, like you say, a very different discussion. I think the important discussion to have, you know, I think you're seeing some pushback, you know, in like startup and tech startup culture to the work a hundred hours a week, you know, happy bro, you know, bro, push yourself to, to the brink culture. Get a second gig. Um, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I don't think it's necessary, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a healthy thing, you know, and that's a juxtaposition, you know, it's not healthy, but you're right. You're seeing, you know, parents work a lot. You're seeing, you know, these kind of vestiges of, and, and, and yeah, you know, you know, I, I it is it is the kind of that that weird, you know, do as we say, not as we do. We want our students to kind of, you know, speaking of my students, you know, like we want them to be healthy. We want them to take care of themselves, don't kill themselves. But they see what succeeds, and they see kind of what's demanding for it. And I also think about it from a kind of, you know, from a developmental standpoint for young athletes. I feel like, you know, a pro at what a pro athlete has to do to maintain their level of physical fitness is very different than from what an 11 year old should be doing for, for their physical fitness and for their skill development. And I wonder if that's, you know, one of the, the mixed messages getting into, I mean, this, this is, it's, it's a deceptively simple question that kind of gets at, at a lot of big issues about like work-life balance, work culture, you know, um, you know, mental health, physical health. Um, one of the interesting things you mentioned about going players, not going out as much anymore, 
And I think, shoot, I forget who wrote this for ESPN. It might've been Baxter Holmes, but I'm blanking on it. It was about the importance of sleep that athletes have. And right. it's an interesting because it's one of like the kind of hidden sabermetric analytics points that is really kind of changing a lot of how what's happening with sports is like we think of analytics a lot with like stats on the field and like quantifying performance and like on-field performance and ranking players and all that but what's really happening one of the the changes is how athletes are handling themselves so they know well i have to sleep i have to like hydrate and sleep before i go to bed i can't go out like i use i can't go out between games because you know Al- alcohol dehydrates me i wouldn't right. have ever known yeah. no i know right but um but but that's i i feel like a really interesting and and, dev- and not developing because i think it's very much here but you know an ongoing development in analytics it's not just how we rank players and how we pick players or make trades or draft them, but like how players take care of themselves and how much they, and like kind of met, you know, you figuring out their, their, how to be at peak physical condition. I think it's a really interesting area. Uh, yeah. And look, I, I think we're seeing this. We keep seeing the tech world trying to refigure itself out on a regular basis. And that's where a lot of these ideas are coming from. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. The stuff, gets kind of trialed in the tech world and then it, it ends up filtering down to the, uh, to the, to sports. Cause a lot of the tech world owns sports these days. Um, right. But you know, first it was, first it was this idea of, you know, we're not going to dress up at the office and so we're going to work when we want and we're going to work from home. And now it's right. like, no, we're going to all come in and we're going to work here. And it's like, they, they haven't really decided what works best. It's like, a, it's like a, it's one long experiment uh, mm-hmm. that continues and continues. And, and look, I mean, the idea of having a limited – well, first of all, the idea of, like, playing sports for money is not that old of a concept, you know? I mean, right. it's, it's, it dates back to, you know, what, the mid-1860s or something like that, or 1850s. Um, so as things continue to, to, to turn, as, as money continues to go into it, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a message necessarily for kids one way or the other because, like – the kids from 10 years ago weren't looking at the sports world and saying, my God, they're, you know, you have to specialize in a sport and you have to work at it, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's no off season. I mean, this no off season thing really in the NBA has only been around for about what, two years now, really ever since right. the, the, the DeAndre Jordan kidnapping. And, um, you know, and then the rest of the sports, I mean, the NFL, I haven't heard anything from the NFL for like a month and a half. It's been great. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, so I, I just think I'm always hesitant to to jump to a conclusion one way or the other about what message it's sending because the message then changes very quickly. Uh, and I think that that's probably what happens as we move forward with sports here. We're just going to continue to see it change because someone will come up with a better idea. I mean, when we talk about like the free market at work, this is really it in, in a positive way. Like ideas coming out, people generating ideas, people trying those ideas out, they may not work. And if they don't work, then they don't work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the backlash to sports specialization, it's something that probably isn't going to work, but it's something that people feel like they have to try. And then Mm -hmm. we'll figure something else out as we move forward. All right. So we have two questions from uh, Lauren Smith. Um, First one right in our wheelhouse. What would you prefer, a tiny house or a mega deck? Why show your work? Double points for HGTV and DIY in the same question. I think she's giving herself double points there, which seems a little weird, but I'll allow it because we like Lauren. So, tiny house or mega deck? Why do? What's your what's your preference? I don't. I just 
like nothing about the tiny house makes a, a lick of sense. Like, I, I mean, I understand there's been this movement towards minimalism in certain segments of, uh, you know, wealthy East coast populations. And I just, this is the product of running out of space in your own environment and feeling like living in a walk-in closet is a great deal at $1,600 a month. Um, like, I would invite those people to come out here to to the Midwest or or go out to the West and there's lots of land and there's lots <laughs> of there's lots of places to build things. I mean, I there's nothing about a tiny house that's appealing to me. Now the the deck thing is actually not terribly appealing either. The problem with the mega deck is the amount of money that goes into maintenance on a mega deck. I I have not a mega deck by any means. I have a deck. It's a it's a you know, it, it overlooks the yard, I, the, the grill sits on it, and I hate staining the thing, I hate power washing the thing, it is, you know, the boards go bad, and you have to get them replaced, and that's expensive, and to to take that, and to expand it, the, the surface area by, like, a factor of 10, I, I unless it's, like, made of some, like, super polymer material that doesn't ever need stained or replaced, like, that I'd be down with, but... Right. The idea of just having like a mega wooden deck, I'm, I'm not only am I out on that, I'm buying stock in whatever the opposite of that is. Absolutely, I have a I have a non mega deck. I have a tiny deck, um, and I hate and, and I love and hate it. Like I love having it, but I hate it's so way past the cleaning point, need for cleaning and staining the season that it's a wash at this point. Um, I I don't see the value in a mega deck. Like I don't see the allure of having this ginormous thing i would rather have a yard than a big deck um i like yards i like the the flexibility of yards decks always feel like they're really good in theory but they're really good for like sitting okay i can sit anywhere i don't i I don't know i actually am one of those pain in the ass people who love tiny houses and love like airstream trailers i would love love to have one i've always liked small houses like small craftsman type houses our house is no, relatively small compare you know comparatively speaking um like it's completely impractical it's completely like my 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 stuff wouldn't fit in a tiny house my dogs would be too big for a tiny house i have it, it's the most impractical thing in the world but i still want one like I, and I, I i i i don't know there's there, there is that you know it's completely irrational it's completely dumb it's completely east coast elitist but whatever i'm an east coast elitist i'll own it i um i just there's something i always find very what's the word i'm looking for aspirational i guess about like you know the the, the simplifying and you only have the stuff you need and you and, and it's very small and it's very you know not minimalism for like the kind of minimalistic porn you see on tumblr where it's like a, a table with one plate or something like that but like you know very uh, there, there's a certain sort of functionalism that i like about it and well, so I, just, I don't know I, I i like it's completely impractical and i and i would i would vote in my real life i vote for neither but if I if Lauren's making me pick one and she is because she has tenure and I don't, I'm going tiny house. Oh, man, I mean, <laughs> I, I just think I just I, I, like the how much is how much does a tiny house cost? I don't know. You don't know? No, of course not. Why um, would I know that? I know how much my house costs. My house is tiny. I can tell you how much my house costs. Well, okay. Let me let me put it to you this way: like you can buy. Um, I'm looking at the tiny house cost. Um, 
Okay, here we go. Tiny house cost breakdown. I'm oh, I see. This tiny house giant Yeah. Um, okay. So you're talking about um, this. This one costs thirty one thousand one hundred and sixty dollars. Okay, in comparison right. to a, a you know a, a normal sized house, not a problem. Now I'm assuming you've got it on wheels, so you're going to need to buy a fifty five thousand dollar V8 pickup truck, which gets eight miles to the gallon uh, to tow this thing around. So you're already at a point where you'd probably be just as good as just buying a 1200 square foot house. My thing is this, if you're, if you're young and you're, you're in a, I don't know, maybe you're not in a relationship or in a relationship, but you're, you're unattached otherwise, and you don't have a job that requires you to be in one spot. Yeah, sure. Knock yourself out if it's what yeah. you want. But if you have kids already, no, oh, no chance. There's no way in hell. I mean, even, even, even if it's, even if the kids are like fine with living in the tiny house, like, are you going to have relations with your significant other at any point in the future? And if so, like when and how is that going right. to happen? I mean, if you're sleeping above your kids and like, there's like a plywood sheet separating the upper and lower uh, bed areas, like that, that's not going to work. No. I mean, maybe it, I guess it worked in like one room houses in like the 1800s, but we've gone past that as a race. I think like, <laughs> as, as, as a human race, we have exceeded that. Let's like, my, this is my argument with my wife. My wife loves camping. I'm not a big camping guy. And my argument is, you know, We've evolved, yeah. Yeah, we struggled for for millennia to have running water inside and electricity and all of these things that are the comforts of of living in a home. And we're going to just throw all that away and go sleep on the ground and have bugs crawl over us and, and, you know, take a crap in a bucket. Because why? Because nature? No. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you make a fair point. I mean, I, 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 I don't seriously argue with that. Um, I like camping. Again, camping to me is like tiny houses. I like it in theory, but in practice, I'm always looking for a Fairfield. Um, <laughs> Lauren's other question in the second topic: Should LA get the 2024 or 2028 Olympics? Um, you go first on this one. Oh crap! Um, let's see, 2028 because it's four years later, and that's less I have to hear about it. I like LA. I really do. I'm one of the few people that likes Los Angeles uh, that, that actually admits it, that isn't from there. Okay. Um, I hope for LA's sake, they get neither. Uh, I know they're going to have to get one or the other, but, but like, is there a worse thing right now than hosting the Olympics? I mean, even if, even if you're LA and you don't need to build anything new necessarily, they will because they, they will, but they don't have to, and they've got infrastructure already, but it's like, what, like, uh, you know, just putting aside all of the tremendous inconveniences of having the Olympics in your city, you've also mm-hmm. got the now issue of, hey, a major sporting event is a great opportunity for a terrorist threat. Like, right. you, you don't need the reputational hit that you could take from having something go wrong. Right. Um, you know, I'll say this. I think that why do we need a host for the Olympics? What Like, aren't we at a point where we could simply have events in the best possible locations for those events across the world and just televise it. And it's like, you could have a 24 hour sporting event and not have it in a particular city. You could have a city that was named like the, like the ambassador city, the the ambassador city, something like that. And you could have like some of the, like all the indoor events could be there, but 
why? Like, why? Why? I don't understand. I, I understand. I, I get why, but like from a practical perspective, let's let's change this up a little bit. Well, and the, the I forget where I heard this, but the idea, one of the ideas that's been floated is why not rotate it among like the same three or four cities each? I don't know. Have like a rotation, so it's like L.A., Paris, I don't blah blah. You know, Russia, so Putin doesn't nuke us, and I don't know somewhere in in Southeast Asia. And you rotate it among those four cities instead of going to this brand new city every time, which just leads to the white elephants and the, and, and all the construction boondoggles. And we know why we don't, because the IOC is looking for money and, and, and all the bribes and stuff. But yeah, if you're going for pragmatic st- a pragmatic point, I think that's the way to go. Um, is but that's an interesting idea of why do you have to why why not have it at the best pool in the world and then the you know I think you do it because they have the Olympic ideal of the world coming together in one place and sportsmanship and the opening ceremonies and yay world sports but yeah it's an interesting it, it, it at least you know opens up for an interesting thought to doing somewhere doing it somewhere else. so doing it another way that's not so ripe with corruption and. Uh, stadiums I mean, that don't work. I mean, UEFA, which is a tremendously corrupt organization, <laughs> the, the, the European Soccer Union, they, I think they're changing it now so that the next uh, Euro Cup is going to be in cities in different countries mm-hmm. with a championship in one spot. So it's going to be like, you know, London might host the final, but the semifinals will be in like Prague and Amsterdam, and the okay. quarterfinals will be in like Barcelona and Milan and a couple of other places like that. Right. Why not? Like what? Yeah. Like this is, again, it's, it kind of goes back to the music industry. It's not 1975 anymore. Let's right. but just, just change things like change with the times, like quit, right. quit being slaves to this old method of doing things. All right. So we have one more question. Do we want to tackle it today? Can we tackle it quickly or do we want to uh, table the hot dog discussion? I don't. I refuse. That's just such a dumb. No, we're not. Okay. We're never. We're never doing that. Okay. That's that's where I put, that's where I put my foot down topically on this podcast. Because I actually have a good answer that sums it up pretty quickly. Go ahead. Okay. So it's Joanna Hoybers. Uh, actually, she's my, my, she's a very good friend. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I'm gonna be on vacation with her next week. She asked the <laughs> is a hot. Ask her how to pronounce her name first. Then I will. Yeah, I will. Uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? She did this because my wife, I, I, pub- I, I tweeted that my wife and I, after like 87 years of this argument raging on the internet, finally had this discussion this week. And I actually got the best answer from my friend Mark McGuire, who's a newspaper guy in Albany, St. Bonaventure graduate. And he said it best. Because it, the, the crux of it, the crux of the debate is, according to the dictionary, a hot dog is indeed a sandwich. Like there's a, a post on MiriamWebster.com that says, definitionally, it is a sandwich. He said, a hot dog is a sandwich the way that a tomato is a fruit. It is, except that it isn't. End of discussion. And I think that's a really, really good way of looking at it. You're going to actually make me talk about this, aren't you? I, um, I don't make you do anything. All right. Here's, here's my here's what I hate about this question and why it's so dumb beyond the fact that people just like everything else on the internet, just beat it into the ground. Right. Here's the biggest issue I have with it. People ask you, is a hot dog, is a a hot dog, a sandwich? No, a hot dog is a piece of meat Mm -hmm. like by itself. It's just a piece of meat. So no, it's, I'd be like saying is a steak, a sandwich or is a hamburger, a sandwich? No, it's a a piece of meat. Or, or is it, (laughs) I mean, like, if you want to say is a hot dog on a bun a sandwich, that's a different thing. But if I put a hot dog on two pieces of bread, is it a sandwich? If I put a hot dog, and more importantly, you can put a hot dog on a plate and it, you call it a hot dog. Right. As a, like, uh, yeah. It's like that. It's like that Mitch Hedberg piece, you know, where he complains about, you know, when you know that 
they call it corn on the cob. And then when you have like just corn, you call it corn, but that's wrong because it comes on the cob. Right. Like really we should be calling it corn off the cob. <laughs> right. I mean, right. so it's, it's, it's that sort of thing where you've got, the hot dog is just the piece of meat. It's like any other piece of meat that would go into a prospective sandwich. And what, what makes it a sandwich or not a sandwich is what you do with it after that. Gotcha. Now you could, you could make the question of, okay, it's because it's a, a hot dog bun is a, as a conjoined pair piece of bread. If you put it in that, is that a sandwich? Now, if you're going to ask that question, I will begrudgingly say, well, okay, we should have a debate about open faced breads and whether right. those really count because then that opens up a whole the bunch sub, of the things. lobster roll yeah. yeah but the but the whole hot dog a sandwich thing it it takes too many things for granted and that's it's lazy debating all right well we've solved that issue and now we can never speak of it again thank god all right all right well hey good stuff uh thanks to all of you for listening in and uh brian thank you for um um being you it's really it's great that you're you and you know i don't think i don't think it you the podcast would not have you on it if you weren't you so um so be keep keep on being you we'll uh we'll be back if you guys want to catch up with us it's at flipside pod or at bp moritz at dr gc you can always hit us up during the week with questions reactions if you don't like what we've said let us know at least it lets us know that people like pay attention to us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, leave comments on the YouTube channel. We've got a podcast feed on iTunes, which this will, you'll probably be listening to it on that now. But if you want to check out the YouTube, just search Flipside Podcast on YouTube. You'll find us there. Uh, any final thoughts? Nope. Looking forward to a week in Lake George uh, in the Adirondacks where uh, I'm going to solve, was, it, was I going to solve global warming? Was that what I was doing? You're going to solve global warming, yes. On it. Okay, I'll report back in two weeks with how I fixed it. We'll see which of us comes up with the better solution. So. Gotcha. Anyway, for Brian, I'm Galen. We'll catch you folks on the flip side. So long, everybody.